Vandana Gopikumar, founder of the Banyan, treatment and care for the mentally ill. Chennai, India. There was this woman who was absolutely uh, lost, very visibly deluded, gesticulating to herself. That vision really was a source of motivation for us to take off. Homeless persons with mental health issues often are exposed to all forms of harm, injury, physical abuse, sexual exploitation, starvation, rarely have access to even the basic amenities, are sleeping rough. This is Karin Weiss and welcome to the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for All podcast. And today we talk with Vandana Kopikumar, a remarkable woman who established in 1993 together with her friend Vaishnavi the Banyan, a non-governmental organization based in Chennai which takes in and provides treatment to mentally ill homeless people, especially women. Today they also run the Banyan Academy of Leadership in Mental Health with a vision to build pillars of research, education, training and advocacy to influence policy change and augment stakeholder collaborations in mental health. Bandana and her team won several awards for their achievements. Hi Vandana, thank you so much for being my guest at the Medicus Mundi Health for All podcast today. Welcome to this episode. Hi Karin, it's such a pleasure and an honor indeed. Thank you for inviting me. When I used to live in rural Haiti, I enjoyed walking through the local market. And one day a woman appeared, half naked, very dirty and shouting something weird and she seemed totally out of her mind. No one really cared or took notice of her. I thought, what a poor woman and what went wrong in her life? And I know you experienced the same thing in your country and you did take notice and you stopped and started to care for women living in the streets and having mental health problems. Where does this passion and love for caring for the most vulnerable people come from? Ah, that's a really difficult question, isn't it? So every time that we dig deep into our souls to find the answer for uh, why really this happened... Uh, there's always uh, numerous responses uh, from within. The first, of course, just like you said, uh, we were right in front of another woman, just like us, our age, fear in her eyes, in the midst of a sea of humanity, and yes, somehow in a bubble of alienation and loneliness, screaming to be heard with hardly any clothes, um, obviously with an opportunity to live life like us and yet sort of living on the margins. And therefore that definitely was a seed and a motivator or a trigger saying that the world should be an equitable place. There should be justice. And if I, I can live the way that I do, uh, then this person here should be in a position to do the same. But in addition to that, I think it was also a combination of the friendship that Vaishnavi and I shared uh, and our upbringing where we were brought up in a way in which we were aware of our privilege and yet aware of uh, the difficulties in various groups around us. So we weren't really sheltered from that. So that exposure in terms of parenting and upbringing, I think, had a 
definitely had a huge impact. Essentially, the loneliness and the fear in the woman's eyes and that thought that I could be the woman, you could be the woman, anybody could be the woman. There's just a very thin line separating me from that person. Very interesting with the thin line because many people would have similar thoughts as I had with my story in Haiti and feel very compassionate about helping, but in the end would be too afraid to embark on the journey of helping the most vulnerable. What happened inside you that is decided to keep going and help mentally ill women living in the streets? Okay, so I think that was a lot to do with youth, right? So when you're young and when you see somebody like this, you immediately want to respond, which we did. So uh, I had just finished, completed my uh, psychiatric social work and I was visiting Vaishnavi when we saw this woman. And there was a whole host of other people around and unfortunately not in a position to support, not because they didn't care, but because like you said, they felt compassion but didn't really know what to do because pathways to care for a group as vulnerable as this weren't really outlined well enough and aren't still outlined well enough because it is a complex problem, the intersectionality between mental illness and homelessness, right? Or between deprivation, poverty, structural barriers and mental illness. So it was the same back then, only a lot worse. Fortunately for us, we had a few friends uh, as a result of our networks and our common interests who were in a position to care for this woman. And therefore, we sat in auto, you call it a tuk-tuk, so a little vehicle, and took her into a place of safety where she was cared for. But unfortunately, holistic care of the sort that you may require, which revisits one's past if required, focuses on one's future, focuses on stressors, focuses on one's social context that perhaps precipitates uh, ill health and uh, doesn't really limit itself to a bio medical paradigm was somewhat not embedded within the system of care that was available to her, though there's deep respect and gratitude to those who reached out to her because they did their all at that point. Uh, Therefore, when we went, there was a great deal of excitement and joy saying, hey, this woman is going to be well and she's going to be back and she's going to be one of us. We're going to go back and visit her and she'll live her full life, which is what we want. Really, any of us want deep down wants most people to be happy and wants to see goodness in the world, right? But when we went back after several visits, unfortunately, as much as the organization tried to do everything that they could, she left. And that happens very often and it's all right for people to leave. But then we figured that this was not... Uh, this was somewhat an intractable problem and many people chose to stay away from it because it was a complex problem and a wicked problem, right? Uh, And ever since, wherever that we went, somehow from nowhere, our eyes just saw more such women standing in different corners, seeking arms, eating out of garbage bins, some uh, very visibly uh, having been abused with broken limbs and God knows what else, and some even with kids. So we just took the plunge, uh, I think, as a result of a combination of wanting to not uh, sort of be party to a world that was apathetic uh, and invisibilized such persons, uh, thinking that the problem was solved and that we uh, small and that we had the ability to solve it, and also knowing that there could be 
prospects for collective action in society where we could dig deep into collective consciousness and collective goodness. So this inequity didn't have to exist. One led to the other to set up a small shelter home where we lived and worked for eight years with people whom we cared for and learned most of our lessons, not from textbooks, not from theory, but from the people who lived with us. And what are the stories behind these women? Why are they ending up in the street? Okay, so this is interesting. And for this, I will narrate a story myself. So, uh, you know, there was this lady called Ram Kumari. And this best answers your question. And she came to us um, uh, referred by the police because she was begging for arms and she was, quote, unquote, a little aggressive and very visibly unwell because gesticulating to herself, typical symptoms of perhaps what we would refer to as schizophrenia, right? So uh, when she came into our care, she was initially resistant to treatment, but then over a period of time, because we lived together, cooked her favorite chapathis together, created an ecosystem that was very home-like. She got to a state where uh, we, we were in a position to foster trust, and therefore she accepted treatment. And we, as we went through the various stages of treatment that has a social component, a psychological component, and a biomedical component, she got to a stage where she sort of was engaged in our vocational training unit and when she was there she was tailoring little clothes for her children whom she'd left far behind and then she narrated her story saying she, it, it had been a while since she was away from her children she didn't know how long and that she wanted to return to them and to her husband whom she loved and missed and to her family and to her culture which was very distant from our South Indian culture, whether it was food, whether it was uh, her attire. When she said all of that, uh, we were wondering if she was abandoned and if there was hope at all when we took her back home for uh, acceptance and community re-entry. And so we set out on this journey when we had little monies. We got onto the train and we got down based on her direction. She wasn't literate, so she couldn't give us a written address. We couldn't write and get information to know if she was uh, indeed from the place that she said she was from, which is a place called Pratapgarh in Uttar Pradesh in India. And we are located in Tamil Nadu, which is the southern tip. So this is central India. Uh, as we got down at the station, she looked at, you know, the station and then we came out, she looked at the clock tower and she said, you know, nothing looks familiar. Uh, and we were a little worried because it was a long journey. We sort of hung around for a while and we're almost on the verge of giving up. Just at that moment, there was this person who was uh, on a bicycle who saw her and his face changed colors and he turned pale and jumped off the cycle and said, hey, aren't you Bela's mother? And we said, yes. And she said, yes. And but she was a little startled. So she was quiet. And he said, come, let me take you. And he pushed the cycle and we followed him. And we reached a house uh, which had decorative fairy lights and her photograph hanging at the entrance in the courtyard with a garland. And the first scene that happened at that point was huge uh, boys and girls come running, break down into sobs and just hug her and hold her tight not to let her go again. And us in a state of absolute shock, also tearing up, Ram Kumari showing no signs of 
uh, emotion just startled uh, and then the community leader uh, uh, gave us the story very quickly as many many people gathered around us that she had been missing six years the family really cared for her her children who were three six and ten were now sixteen and eight and whatever else and it had been eight years and uh, uh, the we we got back on the same day that her daughter was getting married. But the reason that she had ended up homeless was because, was because lack of access to care was in combined with perhaps poverty and high caregiver strain. And I mean, if we look at the statistics, there's 150 million Indians which are estimated to live with mental health issues and only 20% receive the care they need. You already mentioned it a little bit, but why is there such a huge lack of mental health services? So I don't think there's so much a lack of mental health services at the moment, but I think a there is a lack of appropriateness in the sort of care that's provided. So the flagship program, the district mental health program, now covers about 500 districts. So you have medicines. But as we know, pill popping alone isn't sufficient, right, to treat a mental health issue. The precipitating factors are often social stressors. So your gender and the way in which the girl child is treated or the woman is treated in the Indian society uh, or globally for that matter, uh, it has a role to play. Poverty, structural barriers that are intergenerational. So you live year after year, generation after generation, and get to a point where you have access to less than $1 a day. And uh, more often than not, it is usually the woman bearing the brunt of it, having to start off early on in her life as an infant with lesser nutrition, having then, if there is a boy child uh, in the family, to sacrifice probably a large quantity of her nutrition to the boy child, give up her education to care for the boy child, uh, therefore grew up with lack of literacy, and uh, in the process of growing up with lack of literacy, uh, pursue a social role that she isn't entirely comfortable with, that is dictated by dominant paradigms that are patriarchal uh, and end up getting married in a patriarchal society with where dowry still very much exists uh, and if to layer this up you have a caste-based barrier as well or caste-based discrimination which is very peculiar to the Indian society then you are it's a double jeopardy situation where on the one hand you are female and discriminated against and on the margins, and two, you have a caste-related issues and you're f doubly discriminated and doubly poor and have far lesser re access to resources. This combination really and this interplay, which we refer to as intersectionality, results in an absolute downward descent and slide into a state of not just poverty, but into a state of hopelessness. Uh, we haven't integrated the social, we haven't integrated the psychological. 
So you still have for every one lakh or one million, only one or two psychologists or one or two social workers, right? And that deficit is large because if you don't fix the foundation on which you build your society, if inequities exist right from the word go, how can distress not exist? And where distress exists and where hopelessness exists, how can mental health be an active part of such a society? Is mental health stigmatized in your country? I think mental health is stigmatized globally, as is caste, right? So what is caste in our country is probably race in the rest of the world, right? So as much as you have people of a particular caste ostracized here, you equally have people of uh, different ethnicities and different uh, racial backgrounds being stigmatized and ostracized in different parts of the world. Uh, street homelessness is common globally. So I would think that privilege and the lack of it is really the mediating factor that could be race or caste, that could be gender or poverty. But this intersectionality stigmatizes the person and mental health only tops it up. In 1993, this psychiatric social worker and her best friend decided to create The Banyan. It's a one-of-a-kind women's shelter. The program includes a comprehensive care system, including medical, physical and psychological help, along with job training, leading to greater equality and social justice. The focus really is not to live in an institution, but to go back to your families, wherever you hail from, and live independent lives. In 1993, you and your friend established the Banyan, which is one of the largest mental health service organizations in the country. Can you tell us in short, what is the Banyan and what do you do exactly? Okay, so I'm just going to break it down into three decades. In the first decade of our work, we did exactly what we told you, reached out, lived and worked with persons who are homeless and with mental health issues and developed comprehensive and robust systems to address their concerns and pursue the goal of personal recovery and not recovery that equals reduction in symptoms, but recovery when the person feels comfortable that the person wants to pursue his or her dreams and goals and make a re-entry into community, whatever that sense of community may be. It may be back into birth family, back into her community, uh, uh, her married family, back into uh, her village or into a job or work or into independent living. Right. So uh, our first model, therefore, uh, worked on the goal of social inclusion and provided hospital-based or shelter-based care and services that were comprehensive and that were very much co-produced uh, by us, mental health professionals, and the users who, uh, whom we serviced. Uh, uh, so the first 10 years passed just understanding the nuances around this, because as much as we reached out to about, to date we have reached out to about 3,000 persons, equally it's only 50% of them who have managed to go back homes, and it's uh, three quarters of them who have continued to sustain a state of well-being, because many of them have gone back to their states of stress, to face the same structural barriers of caste, class, gender-based discrimination, to face abject poverty. So there's still more to study and still more to fix 
both with the nature of uh, the district mental health program and the nature of services, right? But that was the first 10 years. That resulted in uh, what is now referred to as the emergency care and the recovery center, where the focus is really personal recovery and social inclusion and integrated care, uh, which has now been adopted by the government uh, and scaled up in, uh, and this is exciting because it's been scaled up in 10 other districts uh, using the same standardized uh, protocols that we do uh, in collaboration with local civil society organizations, so local not-for-profits. And how did you manage that the government is taking up your model? Well, I think 30 years of work showcasing results from uh, you tracking outcomes of people who have been through our system and then recovered and then turned into peer leaders and turned into peer educators and tr and sort of advocated for the needs for such persons to have localized resources that are non-stigmatizing and in general hospitals, so within the health system. So this is truly remarkable because the government of Tamil Nadu has integrated a unit in the tertiary care or in the secondary care service that is dedicated exclusively to homeless persons with mental health issues. And this is in 10 districts, but going to be, you know, scaled up to all of the 37 districts. Did you also experience any setbacks? Well, when you work with partners, there are always setbacks. So there could be promises and, uh, you know, that fail. There could be delays. There could be bureaucratic problems. There could be further stigma in rural areas. Uh, there could be uh, financial challenges. Uh, there could be just the problem itself that is so complex that you do not find a solution. And we work in a society that just wants to click its fingers and find solutions to every problem. But not every problem has a solution. And there are some dark and gloomy endings. And one has to work with those moments as much as you work with the highlights. This is the first 10 years that has now come, ended up at this stage, that led to the second decade, the second 10 years, that focused on uh, the Center for Social Needs and Livelihoods, that said that, all right, mental health is about care, it is about social inclusion, but it's also about workforce participation. It is also about citizenship rights. It is also about personhood. It is also about social mixing. It is about agency, choice, participation, all of which is just grabbed away at an instance, either by society or by state or by family, all who are supposed to be caregivers and closest to you and constitutionally or familiarly supposed to care for you. I don't think they do it on purpose, but I just think that there is a narrative around mental illness that has been built right from the 13th century and the days of the bedlam where institutions that were meant to care turned into poor houses and ended up being uh, places where a lot of violations took place. And therefore, there is the notion of the person with mental illness who is always the other and non-productive. And not the person who's really wiser. Uh, and wiser because the person has got, been through profound experiences that have resulted in a great deal of depth of reflection uh, and, and therefore understanding of a varied range of emotions. 
right? So this center, therefore, makes sure that we tap into the government's resources for social entitlements so we're able to fight poverty and caregivers train and also ensure that there is access to livelihood so people are working because women who aren't working or men who aren't working for that matter are not uh, not just not having a means of livelihoods and self-reliance and that is again sort of uh, stigmatizing in a way because you become dependent, but also not given the chance really to participate and mix with other people. Where do you take the strength to, to keep going? Or how do you fill up your batteries to really keep going for your vision and for your dreams? I, I just feel that our strength comes from these people who reject pity, who reject patronizing and who uh, come from a position of feeling hope and hope uh, in, in a very kind way, goals in a very kind way and the pathways to find those in a very collaborative way. So I think that gives us the strength, that gives us the hope uh, and also our own lived experience because I am a person who lives with bipolar disorder. Uh, as is my colleague, uh, Vaishnavi, uh, who lives with depression. Uh, so uh, there is somehow greater insight and greater understanding, probably because there's kinship amongst us as a group where we understand our experiences better because our, we have lived it and we have seen the othering and experienced it. What are your aspirations for the future? What we are doing now is that we have won a grant to take this to scale. And so let's leave the grant aside. But because uh, the only reason I talk about a grant is because we're constantly, we're an organization that's constantly innovating, tweaking, co-producing with our users. And therefore, uh, being in a low resource setting, our needs are often large and we have only limited resources so every time we have resources we're trying to share it with others who uh, typically share similar ideals and uh, vision therefore this last model that's home again that was the last decade of the banyan is being taken to scale in eight other states and in sri lanka so imagine people leaving mental hospitals leaving uh, area leaving large uh, uh, walls, leaving closed wards, and moving into communities to hopefully friendly neighbors. My dream and uh, aspiration that we find more such houses. And why is this good? It's good for them because they are breaking the shackles really that tie them down to a particular kind of life. But more importantly, it's also good for society because society learns from others who can teach them a lot. Society breaks not just this uh, disability-related stigma, but also breaks caste and gender-related stereotypes. Because suddenly you have a woman-led household and so many women-led households because they're in regular neighborhoods. So this really is my dream, that our society is interspersed with different kinds of people. People learn different ways to express your madness, and madness not in the typical, stereotypical, bad, violent, messy way, but madness in a beautiful way, where you're able to just shine through and be yourself and experience your authenticity and share that with others in very real conversations that matter. Thank you so much, Mandana, 
for this very interesting talk and for being my guest at the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for All podcast today. Thank you so much, Karin. It's been a pleasure. This was the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for All podcast with Karin Weiss. You can listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and on our website. To spread the message, please leave a comment on our website, share and like it. Stay tuned and watch out for the next episode on mental health.